Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friends, to episode 52, a special election security episode of the Business for Good podcast. This is, of course, a historic election for many reasons, one of them being that there's a very high concern about how the votes are going to be counted. We are now just days away from the final day to vote, and we've got news stories about the Russians and the Iranians gaining access to certain voter records in the U.S., it is crazy. One need look no further than 20 years ago when disputes over how to count the ballots in Florida led the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and end the state's presidential recount, handing by a five to four ruling George W. Bush the presidency over Al Gore. Well, the events of 2000 may seem tame compared to what could happen on election night 2020 and in the following days. This time, we not only have a pandemic gripping our nation, but a president who regularly rails against mail-in voting as allegedly fraudulent and who assuredly is going to claim that the election results are fake. Recall that even after his electoral college victory in 2016, then-president-elect Trump maintained without providing any evidence whatsoever that his loss in the popular vote to Hillary Clinton was only made possible by millions of so-called fraudulent votes. Turns out, however, that there is one thing everybody should be able to agree on. We need better technology to improve the security of our elections, from the news that people are seeing during election season to the counting of the actual votes on election day and beyond. Well, good news. In this episode, we have one of the nation's foremost experts on cybersecurity, Dr. Aaron Brantley, the founder and the director of the Tech for Humanity Lab at Virginia Tech. In addition to having worked at the U.S. Army Cyber Institute and at West Point, Aaron has written four books on cybersecurity and has traveled the world to promote democracy and protect elections abroad. Few people understand the cyber threats that we face better than Aaron and the opportunities for businesses to create technology that can help safeguard our electoral processes and therefore our democracy. And I'm proud to say that Aaron also happens to be my cousin. As you'll hear, Aaron and I talk in this episode about everything from what threats he sees as the most serious to why we don't yet have secure online voting to how other countries handle their election security and more. And at the end of our conversation, Aaron gives his wish list of startups he hopes will be founded that could both financially be lucrative for their founders while also protecting the integrity of our voting systems. So, if you care about promoting our democracy's electoral process and how digital innovation can help, this is the episode for you. I now give you Dr. Aaron Brantley. Dr. Aaron Brantley, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Business for Good podcast. It's a pleasure to be here and it's truly an honor. Thank you. No, the honor is all mine. It is amazing to me, having known you for many decades, to know that you are the author, not of one, not of two, not of three, but of four books all on cybersecurity. What is it like having written four books, Aaron? That seems crazy to me, having written one book, uh, what it would be like to be even younger than I am, which you are barely, and having written four, four times the number of books that I have. So tell me about it. Uh, it's been great. Uh, I mean, I have so many things that I'm interested in and continuously find new things that I want to study. Yeah. Uh, and there's so many other people in the field that provide great background and other resources that just motivate me and get me moving forward. Where, um, do, you where do you find the time for this? I mean, you have a family, you have three children, a wife, a dog. I don't know how you find the time to, to write not only four books, but four pretty uh, serious academically minded books. Like where, what, where are you spending your time? I mean, you also have a full-time job. So where in the day or the night maybe are you writing these? 
so I, I usually spend a large amount of time doing a, a variety of background research and creating a, a large body of notes. And then I will literally sit down uninterrupted for six, seven hours at a time, forgetting to eat and drink and, and, and everything else. And, and I'll just write. Uh, and my wife will come in and remind me that it's important to eat and get up every so often. And, and by the end of, <laughs> uh, by the end of a few months, I usually have a book at the end of that. And <laughs> Amazing. That's really, I mean, it, it's really incredible. I, I envy and admire your, uh, your productivity there. Having written one book, Queen Meat, I know how long it took me to both research and write it. And, you know, I went the traditional publishing route with it. Um, working uh, with Simon & Schuster to put it out a couple years ago. And I've actually now written another book, which is a, a novel. It's like a sci-fi uh, novel about humanity's relationship with the rest of the animals on the planet. And I'm thinking about uh, going a different route, like maybe even self-publishing or hybrid publishing. I'm not yet sure yet, uh, but do you have any thoughts on on the different models of publishing that there are? Yeah, absolutely. So all four of my books are with various types of academic presses, and they take an enormous amount of time uh, to get through the peer review process. Uh, that being said, uh, some of my favorite books and authors have gone the self-publishing route or are presently in the process of going into the self-publishing route. One of the most famous science fiction writers in the world right now, uh, Cory Doctor, who provides really fascinating stories that also highlight the ethical and moral challenges of technology in today's world, is currently crowdsource funding uh, both his audiobook version of his new book and uh, providing uh, self-publishing for that book as well in the hopes that he can break free of kind of corporate uh, publisher monopolies. Mm -hmm. uh, other examples obviously are the, the fantastic writer Andy Weir who got his first book self-published. And there's a lot of really interesting ways to do that, particularly in this uh, modern age where you can run podcasts, you can do self-marketing campaigns, crowdfunding, a whole bunch of different things. Uh, and it offers a, a significant return on investment if you're able to successfully market it, uh, much yeah. more so than, than conventional publishing routes in, in most terms. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think for Queen Meat, uh, the uh, nearly all of the publicity that the book received was as a result of my own efforts as opposed to uh, publishers. And I thought that my publisher did a really good job in, in many ways, but the in terms of the publicity, I would say more than 90% of it was not generated by them. And Andy Weir is a great example. I mean, that dude wrote The Martian. And I'm pretty sure I remember listening to an interview with him where he was crowdsourcing the plot chapter by chapter. Like he was publishing it chapter by chapter and crowdsourcing the plot among like NASA engineers and so on. And, you know, now look at what this guy has done. I mean, obviously it went on to become like a major blockbuster movie. So anyway, uh, my hat is off to you for, for writing four books on cybersecurity. But I, I want to go back, Aaron, before you were a PhD, before you had written all these books on cybersecurity, you know, you are somebody who is always interested in uh, the world, in international affairs and politics. And I remember when you went into the Peace Corps, you went to Ukraine, which I remember you're the one who taught me it is not the Ukraine, it is just Ukraine, um, that... Uh, you know, I never would have thought, well, this guy is going to the Peace Corps is going to ultimately end up in the military doing uh, cybersecurity and cyber defense. So uh, tell me how it happened. Tell me like the story of how you went from being a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine to doing what it is that you're doing now working on cybersecurity. Yeah, so it actually started with uh, back when I was in elementary school, I had a, an uncle uh, who, was, who motivated me to do a science project to track uh, uh, 
the speed of email transfers around the world uh, run either through automated uh, transmission control internet protocol, the standard protocol of the internet, or by directing them through various countries explicitly. Uh, and so that kind of led me into an interest in technology. And when I got into Ukraine, I oh, arrived- hold on. Aaron, let me interrupt you. I'm sorry. So when you were in elementary school, you were thinking about these type of issues? Yeah. So we, we, <laughs> did, a, we did a project for my science fair project, uh, uh, doing global email routing times, uh, Wow. Uh, and so that was a fun science fair project when I was about 11. <laughs> wow. What year was this? Uh, this was, uh, this must have been in 93, 94. Wow. It's so funny so. because uh, I, I don't believe I had an email address until like 97. And back in 93, you're doing science fair projects with email. That's pretty sick. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, but uh, it, it really kind of gave me a lot of perspective on the power that technology would have in the future. and. Uh, when I arrived in Ukraine, I arrived in in uh, February of 2005, uh, right after the completion of the Orange Revolution there. And uh, I arrived in country uh, on the auspices of the youth development program that had just been started there. And our job was to build youth capacity. And, and so I worked with my local community to build uh, computer labs and teach computer programming and uh, to build various nonprofit organizations that would teach journalism and civil society development. Uh, and so I actually, uh, I, I wrote a book within the Peace Corps itself that's not a public book, but uh, on teaching journalism in the developing world. Uh, and it was uh, motivated by um, the, the family of Yuri Gungadza, who was actually uh, assassinated during the 2000, uh, prior to the 2004 election in Ukraine. Hmm. And and I, I don't want to gloss over this because there was another major point in your life that occurred, another major milestone in your life that occurred in, in Ukraine, which is that you met somebody who became your wife. I did, yeah. So I, I, <laughs> yeah. I was fortunate to uh, work for the Youth Community Action Network, an NGO set up by a bunch of Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, and while I was working there, I met another counselor who worked on gender issues. Uh, and uh, we hit it off and we... I guess fell in love and the, the rest is history. Uh, and you know, three kids and, and a dog later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and now she's Very doing nice. a PhD as well. So, uh, amazing. Amazing. Um, Very cool. But when I, when I got, when I finished my Peace Corps service, I really kind of, uh, transitioned from that into an international democracy development. I was the, uh, IT person in the Ukraine, uh, international Republican Institute office, which, um, the U.S. has a series of democracy NGOs that were founded under the Reagan administration, under the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, and uh, they work in, a, in, at that time, they were working in a little over uh, 80 plus countries around the world. Uh, and I was working in their Ukraine office, helping develop some of their web programs uh, and, and things on, on that end. And then when Natalia, my wife, and I moved back to the United States, uh, I took up a position uh, in their IT shop as uh, a global support. Uh, person in their IT shop while I got my master's degree. And she worked on their Ukraine programs as well, or not Ukraine, she actually worked on their Moldova and Georgia programs. Um, the, but that kind of introduction into technology and working on global support operations uh, in over 80 countries around the world, uh, in, particularly in places where there's substantial repression and electoral uh, meddling by the, the authoritarian regimes or by outside parties, uh, really put us in a, in a, in a really fast paced learning environment, uh, particularly right as things like YouTube and 
and Facebook and Twitter and all these other types of things are really starting to take off in 2007, 2008 timeframe. Um, and so I, I started working on developing a variety of different programs and projects uh, uh, for them. Uh, and then uh, I was in my master's program and I came across a, a fantastic professor, uh, Michael Warner, who's, who was at the time a, a historian at the Central Intelligence Agency uh, and now is the command historian for U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, and he encouraged me to continue uh, my interest in technology and intelligence by moving down and uh, studying under a, a top intelligence scholar at the University of Georgia. Um, so when I finished my PhD, I thought, you know, maybe I'll go into the intelligence community or something along those lines. Uh, but I really didn't have a clear pathway into that. And so I actually went back into the democracy development community uh, and worked as a senior program officer for information communications technology at the National Democratic Institute, the other of the two main U.S. democracy NGOs. And there I worked with a, an absolutely top-notch team of, of global technology experts working on facilitating uh, election transparency, on uh, political mobilization for political parties, for individuals, for human rights in a variety of different environments. Uh, called the NDI Tech Team, uh, and they developed, uh, as it were, we as a team developed a variety of different programs, um, including parallel vote tabulation software platforms, uh, learning management systems for training activists around the world. Um, we did steganography to get materials and resources inside and out of countries where um, uh, border checkpoints and things would, would prevent people from bringing in democracy materials. Uh, and human rights materials, women's rights materials, uh, gender issue materials, other types of things. So we created, uh, literally created steganographic programs that would encapsulate all of these materials into um, files that looked like videos. And I literally put them in a, 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 a video file that uh, was lions and tigers and bears. And so that when they would cross the border and the border guards would click on the file, uh, before this, the, the file would show an error because it was an encrypted folder with materials for democracy and human rights activists. And the, the, the person carrying these materials in would be arrested and deported from the country. Now, when they would cross in, the border guards would click on the file and it would open it up and literally play a, a, a zoo video of lions and tigers and bears. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so the... When I while I was working there, I had a, a great time. I was just I was just traveling so much, and we had just had our first child, uh, and uh, so I, I was looking for something else uh, that would give me a little bit more home front stability. Uh, and so I, I applied to a number of academic positions, and one of them was a position at a newly forming institute in the Army uh, called the the. Army Cyber Institute, and I was one of the first civilian hires to, to work in that institute. And this is right at the same time that General Alexander was uh, pushing through the changes and creating U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, and so I got to go up there, and I was actually the first civilian to arrive at the new institute, um, uh, a civilian researcher to arrive at the new institute. And, it was, and we got to do a lot of really uh, fascinating uh, and in intricate research uh, at a very high paced time uh, from 2014 to 2017 when I was there, uh, and I got to, I got to brief uh, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter. I got to brief a bunch of the different combatant commanders from European Command, Central Command, South Command, North Command, and, and others around the world. I got to uh, embed with Special Forces in the Middle East and in 
uh, work with various different uh, units around the world uh, on a variety of different technical challenges uh, that face U.S. national uh, security, U.S. cybersecurity, uh, information operations, and so forth, and a variety of other programs. Um, our team developed uh, a, a, one of the first um, counter drone guns. They, uh, we developed a variety of systems to, to, to get drones out of the sky. We developed cybersecurity platforms for uh, early concepts of, of some machine learning and things for the Army and, and so forth. And then we also did a, a bunch of work on counterterrorism uh, for ISIS, uh, uh, counter ISIS operations and for, for both in the field and for, uh, domestic law enforcement intelligence agencies. Cool. So Aaron, that's obviously an illustrious career so far for anybody, um, let alone for somebody who has, uh, lived for four decades, but, um, let's talk now just briefly about the new endeavor that you have founded. You're the director of the Tech for Humanity Lab at Virginia Tech. And just tell me briefly, what is the Tech for Humanity Lab? And then let's get into the election security stuff, because obviously we're in the midst of a very, uh, a, a very polarizing election. And I want to talk about our democracy vis-a-vis those of some of the other countries that you have studied and been to. So. What is Tech for Humanity Lab? Yeah, so uh, over the course of my career, I've had the opportunity to interact with uh, the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto quite a bit. And Ron Debert is a global expert. He's done cybersecurity protection for everybody from the Dalai Lama to journalists in Mexico and other other places. And he really inspired me quite a bit to try and uh, move beyond the national security military kind of uh, kind of environment and really focus on the human aspects of cybersecurity. And so the Tech for Humanity Lab's central mission is to focus on the impact of technology on the human condition, whether that be in a, in a voting sense, uh, making sure that electoral systems are safe and, and, and protected against outside and inside interference, uh, protecting individuals against disinformation, or whether it is the impact of artificial intelligence and machine learning on on elections or on work or other types of environments. And so our lab provides a variety of different technologies uh, that we've built into a space in, on, on the Virginia Tech campus where students and faculty from all over the university are able to come in and pick up different types of technologies uh, and really ask those questions. How is this technology impacting the human condition? And is it making a difference in a positive way or are there things that we need to consider for moral or ethical or, or other types of concerns moving forward in how these issues uh, are going to impact society, impact the, the security of individuals or communities uh, ranging across the spectrum? Uh, so we take a very plural approach to this. Uh, and our goal is to be inclusive, uh, to provide for opportunities for a diverse group of individuals to explore and ask challenging questions. And also to have a, a variety of, of, of breathing room to engage in controversial topics uh, that, that challenge the status quo and say, hey, are we making the right decisions moving forward or have we kind of gotten off path and how can we get ourselves back on path? Yeah. So did you see The Social Dilemma? I have, yeah. Yeah. And would you let your kids be on social media prior to, you know, let's say age 16 or 18 or something after watching it? So I, I don't let our kids on, on social media at all. Uh, and um, 
I think that it's it's something that that is going to be a continuing discussion in our house, uh, and and should be a continuing discussion in everybody else's houses as well. Um, I think there's a lot of really good problems that have been raised in that documentary, as well as in a variety of of other documentaries and reports and podcasts elsewhere as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I don't want to talk that much about social media, except for its impact on the election. So let's just get down to it. The fact of the matter is that the U.S. intelligence community basically unanimously concluded that in the 2016 election that Russia uh, tried to interfere in our election to tip the scales toward then-candidate Donald Trump for whatever reasons they preferred him over Hillary Clinton. So is our election security today stronger? Or is it weaker than it was four years ago in when that happened? Generally, we've made some improvements, uh, but these improvements okay. are so. are really not substantial. <laughs> I mean, there's a long way to go. Uh, so the the current state of election security is actually much older than 2016. It actually dates back to uh, the election of George W. Bush and the conflict with him and and uh, in the courts with. Uh, then uh, Vice President Al Gore, and really came to a head in 2002 with the Help America Vote Act, which tried to shift elections away from these hanging Chad-type ballots that that caused such controversy in 2000 to a more digitized modern system. And the the reality is, is that in most countries, the Help America Vote Act or something similar to it has been relatively successful. But in the United States, in a highly federalized system of government, we have 50 states that all basically implement elections in, in quite different ways and manage those elections in different ways on a state-by-state basis. And we saw right. this and, as a – And, oh, and in, in, Florida, in Florida, it was even more complex than that because you had these different counties that were implementing different rules for the recount. You know, if you remember back in 2000, you had – the Gore campaign was asking for recounts in four different counties. And one of the problems was that each of those counties had different rules on how they were going to treat, for example, hanging chads, how they were going to count these double-voted ballots where people had accidentally voted for Pat Buchanan and then for Al Gore. Um, and that was one of the problems, that there was no uniformity at all, even within the state, for how to conduct a recount. That's true, yes, absolutely. And so out of this, this came the, the Help America Vote Act, which was designed to simplify and streamline the process and provided a substantial amount of federal funding to put in, essentially, uh, digital or digitized poll booths. Um, but the challenge is, is that every state interpreted the, the implementation of this in a fundamentally different way. And some states implemented digital only, some states implemented digital with a paper trail, uh, and some did hybrids of those, uh, and and a variety of things in between. Uh, And so uh, this has been a a persistent and ongoing challenge, particularly as almost, I think, as far as I know, every single one of these digital polling booths, according to uh, both reporting in the media as well as uh, as uh, unreported hacker leaks and other types of things has had substantial cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so you know, just for somebody like me who is nowhere near an expert on this, help me understand 
why we can't just vote online. I mean, Amazon is processing millions of transactions every single day that involve credit cards and a, a lot more than just tallying a vote, right? Millions of them and with near perfect accuracy. So why can't we just vote online? Is anywhere in the world doing that right now? Yes. So there's quite a number of countries that do vote online uh, that do uh, online election systems. The most famous of, uh, of these is Estonia, uh, which has their e-voting and they actually have e-citizenship cards with a smart chip that allows you to vote online from basically anywhere in the world. Uh, and the question is, is why can't the U.S. do this? Well, there's a number of, of states that are trying to move, move to this in some form or fashion, uh, but the utilization of this is not universal. And there's also a number of equity issues associated with moving to online uh, voting only as well. For instance, there's an, uh, a non-uniform distribution of, of internet access. It requires uh, ID uh, forms of ID that many states don't provide uh, or that, uh, that many times are, are difficult to obtain for certain individuals who live in the United States. Uh, and so, but, but, but you're talking about an online voting only. I mean, right now we have multiple different types of voting available, right? You can go vote early. You can vote on election day. You can vote by mail-in ballot. Why not just add online voting as another option to make it easier for people? Like, how risky is it? Like in Estonia, have they had problems with uh, you know, pro like uh, false counts or anything like that? They have had a fair number of vulnerabilities associated with it. Uh, about. Two years ago, about 750,000 uh, of the voter ID cards were compromised uh, by a cybersecurity flaw. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, yeah, just a minor, minor vulnerability, right. three quarters so, of a million voters. Um, <laughs> the, there's really no great way to implement secure online voting. And so, if you the, the, you brought up Amazon and the challenges of Amazon, so if Amazon receives a false transaction, of which they receive hundreds of thousands a day, by the way. Uh, they typically write that off as the cost of doing business. And before I was uh, on this one, I was listening to another podcast with Whole Foods and others, and they that you gave with the Whole Foods CEO, and mm -hmm. the they bake into their business environment this uh, this buffer zone of three to seven percent, roughly, of fraud and, and mistakes associated with their business, and they bake that into the cost of all the products and everything else that they sell, and so. In electoral systems, a three to seven percent, that's well above the margin of error of most electoral turnouts. And so mm -hmm. you can't bake in that scale of vulnerability into an online voting system in most uh, in a large democracy mm -hmm. like the United States. And in addition to that, because every state would implement the system separately based on the structure of the federal system in the United States, there would be almost no uniformity in online voting patterns state to state. Uh, and that's a, that's a major, major problem, which means that instead of having like Estonia, where you have one flaw that they then fixed and is now working quite efficiently, you would have 50 states with potentially 50 separate different flaws all having to be fixed in order to solve the e-voting problem. And so is this the same? I mean, you know, because I think about it like I, I bank online, I pay my credit card online, I buy things online. When, you know, is my bank and my credit card having that same margin of error that somebody like Amazon is having? Yes. So uh, I was in a meeting with some uh, credit card executives a few years back. They said that they predict on average up to uh, roughly seven to seven and a half percent of all transactions to be fraudulent. 
Wow. Uh, and okay. so we don't think about that, uh, but that's that's a fairly common <laughs> thing that happens. Right. All right. Well, well. Speaking of fraudulent, I, I was struck by um, one thing that I was reading, and so uh, we know that uh, many of the social media posts that come out uh, relating to elections are fraudulent. That these are bots that, or or these are like troll farms where they're trying to either sow division within the United States or favor one candidate over another. But in your 2016 book, which is entitled "The Decision to Attack Military and Intelligence Cyber Decision Making," um, you wrote that a relatively small scale compromise of an individual's email account followed by propagation of resultant inflammatory revelations seeded into the press and online social media might lead to the upending of an otherwise democratic election. Now, this book came out in April 2016, yet it sounds as if you were talking about what happened to John Podesta's emails um, from the 2016 campaign. So how did you so perfectly foreshadow that? And did you have some advanced knowledge that that is something that the Russians were trying to do when you were writing that? I didn't have any advanced knowledge of it when I wrote it. Actually, the uh, the book went to the publisher in 2015. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but I mean, do, do you agree that what you wrote yeah, is essentially exactly what happened? Yeah, essentially. So, I mean, the, we we live in what uh, is is best referred to in uh, in layman's terms as a, as a consensual hallucination. Uh, uh, this is uh, William Gibson's <laughs> term of of the uh, of cyberspace. You know, when we look at our bank account, when we look at all of these different types of things, we're not actually going to the bank to verify that there's this amount of money in our account. We're seeing a simulacra of it appearing on online in a database somewhere. Uh, and when we look at our emails and other types of of information that we receive from other people or on on digital platforms. We oftentimes judge the validity of that information from the sender that it's coming from, but very rarely do we check uh, the the origin of that. Do we have? I would almost assess that virtually none of the people who are listening to this podcast and virtually none of the people I interact with on a daily basis use uh, an email security platform that's called Pretty Good Privacy or PGP, uh, but. Uh, because it's difficult to use, and so we implicitly put trust in a lot of information that comes our way, particularly when it comes from people that we think we should be trusting, whether it be in our social network or whether it be in our email or somewhere else, uh, or from uh, news sources that sound reputable, you know, like First World News or something like that, or uh, other types of sites. And so when we see that this- <laughs> First World News does not sound reputable to me, but I'll, I'll give you that many people may, may yeah, think no. that, okay. <laughs> You'd be surprised the number yeah. of websites that I saw that people were sharing and verifying information oh, no. from. Yeah. I, <laughs> I would not be surprised since I do see uh, I do see online many times, including relatives of mine who occasionally post <laughs> things from websites that that do appear uh, quite uh, quite suspect. But yeah. uh, you know they 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 affirm their beliefs, so they think, of course, it must uh, it must be good news. So yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, all right. So so people give a high level of confidence and, and trust in things that they that they think, and so keep on going. Sorry. Yeah. So what we're, what we're also seeing is that, uh, when, when the Podesta emails were hacked, we saw hack and modify and leak in those emails. And so, uh, um, Thomas Ridd, a scholar at Johns Hopkins university did a substantial analysis of all of these emails that were leaked and found that a small percentage of them also had, um, uh, false information injected in them to enhance or increase the impact of them. Uh, but the question is, is how impactful is this type of disinformation campaign on an election? 
And that's something that a lot of scholars have been arguing over uh, for the last four years. Um, Yokai Benkler at, at Berkman Center at Harvard has suggested that, uh, and he and his co-authors have suggested that it's it's less impactful than, than we might think it is. Thomas Ridd has also suggested it's less impactful and that it really feeds into the, the ecosystem of, of media and narratives that get pushed out within certain sectors of the media that fail to verify or, or fact check their own sources. Uh, and mm. we're, we're seeing this right now, actually. Um, we see this really outlandish and wild story about you know, somebody delivers two computers to a, uh, to a computer repair shop, never picks them up. The due diligence of this particular computer repair shop is that he then breaks into the computers and finds incriminating information on, the, on one of the candidate's children. You know, in, in normal times, this is like a bad B-movie plot. And yet in, <laughs> in, in our current yeah. electoral environment, we have one section of the, of the electorate that's really taking this to heart and going, oh, my God, this must be true. Uh, so. Right. Right. And then the next thing you know, somebody's shooting up a pizza shop. Right. So, uh, so, so is the issue, Aaron, in terms of election security, is the issue that you have bad actors who are trying to confuse and divide and put out influence stories like that conspiracy? And or is the problem that the actual votes themselves may be modified. So, uh, you know, could somebody, for example, actually affect the tally of the votes that are cast, not just the intent of the voter, but actually changing the numbers fraudulently on election day? So both challenges are problematic. Um, And we have seen in other countries successful hacking and manipulation of electoral voting results. Uh, in Ukraine, we saw the Central Election Commission of Ukraine was hacked by the Rus- uh, Russian uh, special oper- um, APT-28, which is their uh, GRU and uh, uh, intelligence wing. They attacked it and were able to uh, put in files in there that manipulated the actual outcome of the election to suggest that a far-right candidate had won the election, a neo-Nazi candidate had won, and that was actually not the case. Uh, there, w- there was indications that around 12 states uh, in, the, in the previous uh, election cycle uh, in 2016, the presidential election cycle suffered uh, some form of database breach from foreign adversarial actors of some sort. Um, uh, the Department of Homeland Security investigated that and found that there was no significant changes in vote tallies or anything along those lines. Um, hmm. But the possibility exists for those. We've seen uh, the decertification in the in Commonwealth of Virginia, where I live, in 2018 by the governor of an entire class of voting systems because they were susceptible to um, pre-placed cyber attacks that actually altered the votes of individuals on a randomized basis to uh, essentially uh, spit out the erroneous votes. But, hmm. but let's talk about the reality of this. In the 2016 election, the election was won by something like 30,000 votes in Three swing states. This is a this is well within the margin of error of normal things. And so, what you know, if you look at the number of individuals who voted for Jill Stein or didn't vote in those states, uh, you know, the a number of individuals who voted based on disinformation or didn't vote based on disinformation in those areas is likely uh, to have been substantial and could have actually swung the 2016 election. 
Um, and so right. do we... And, and there's all, right, and there's also evidence that the Russians were not only uh, supporting Donald Trump, but that they were also promoting Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, as a way to try to subtract votes from Hillary Clinton, too. Yes, uh, yeah. So there's uh, there's video of, of Jill Stein and Michael Flynn at a, at a dinner table right before the election with, uh, with Vladimir Putin. Um, <laughs> So the, the there's substantial evidence that there was was uh, was substantial in, information operations to both um, dissuade yeah. people from voting and to shift votes away from uh, certain candidates. So, Aaron, numerous times in this interview, we've talked about uh, basically how Russia seems to be uh, a, a threat to the security of our election. Uh, would you say that they are the most serious of the problematic actors in terms of election interference and election security in the world right now? They have been the most serious affecting the United States, for sure, uh, in terms right. of uh, and, electoral and misinformation campaigns. But I think that it's... it's would you say- would you say that we are at war with Russia? We are not at war with Russia. And let me explain why we're not. So first, this is not a new phenomenon. So this is a new phenomenon that people are paying attention to now. Uh, but mm-hmm. the use of disinformation and misinformation by the Russian Federation and the Soviet Union before them and the uh, the Russian Empire prior to that was immense and substantial. Um, the amount of disinformation has had world-changing political implications on it for uh, essentially more than a century. Uh, they ran an information operation that suggested that the U.S. Army and the Central Intelligence Agency were responsible for creating HIV and AIDS. Uh, that caused substantial uh, challenges for AIDS treatment and remediation efforts in Africa for decades and still causes problems for it. Uh, they were able to uh, changed worldwide opinion on uh, on nuclear weapons and other types of things in the 1960s and 70s. It actually cha- and, and actually changed the way in which the U.S. engages in uh, weapons development programs. Um, they actually even at one point got the Reverend Billy Graham to come over and participate in a a, a KGB funded event. Uh, on uh, on <laughs> in Europe to essentially counter U.S. policy. So this is not like a new phenomenon. This is just the most recent iteration that we're seeing of it. And there's just a number of platforms that mm-hmm. amplify this and and create substantial challenges for our current uh, electoral environment. And is this a two-way street? I mean, one of the things that Donald Trump has said publicly was, "Hey, we're doing this too. Like, you know, we're we're not we're not so innocent ourselves." Is the U.S. also involved in this type of election influence campaigns in other countries? So we have been involved in election influence campaigns over the history of the U.S. in terms of covert actions. Uh, we provided funding uh, for propaganda and support of Italian campaigns to prevent them from becoming communist in the post-war era. Uh, the the democracy NGOs that I've worked for they typically but the, the, they typically go into countries and they work with local actors to support those actors and they're not biased actually the the U.S. government typically provides support on uh, to all political parties within a country except communist parties by law and so they will mm. support any party that is a non-communist party that requests help uh, for developing mm-hmm. capacity and support the difference is is that. Uh, generally speaking, U.S. efforts uh, are under the are, are undertaken under the assumption of facilitating liberal democracy in the Western sense. Uh, now, this mm-hmm. is subject to 
moral and ethical concerns and whether that should be applied in certain countries or not. Uh, but the intent is not necessarily to undermine uh, or foster instability in those countries, but rather to create more plural and accepting democracies, generally speaking. So, so you would not say it's the pot calling the kettle black here in terms of, uh, you know, complaints about Russian interference in our elections? I would not say it's it's the pot calling the kettle black. We, ha- right. uh, we have uh, engaged in, um, uh, in civil society development programs in the Russian Federation. I actually was uh, in, uh, tasked with helping an election monitoring organization in Russia defend their networks against the Russian intelligence services about 10 years ago. Uh, and the, the idea is not to necessarily overthrow the state, but rather to facilitate, uh, essentially plural liberal democracies, which has been historically considered to be more stable. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk, Aaron, about what businesses, including startups, might be able to do to shore up election security. So there is a serious problem that you are identifying, which is vulnerabilities in our election security. And there are presumably lots of policies in place. I mean, I, you know, marvel when I look at countries like Australia, where you know, not only do they have much higher voter participation than we do, but it's actually illegal not to vote. It's not just encouraged to vote, it's illegal not to vote. You look at countries like Belgium and Sweden and Denmark, like they all have higher than 80% turnout in their elections compared to us where we have only about half of the eligible voters in America even vote during the presidential election and often much less than that even during a a midterm election. So in terms of what you think companies can do to – either encourage more voter participation or shoring up election security, what do you think are the big opportunities for companies, whether they want to be government contractors or whether they want to create, uh, you know, something to help voters, uh, even in the private sector? Like, what is it that you think that companies can do to actually help improve the American electoral process? So there are a whole range of different things, and I'm going to break it up into a couple different categories. First, let's talk primarily about the poll booth itself. Right now, there's only a couple principal polling, uh, electronic polling system uh, manufacturers and, and, devi- and device developers and software developers. So this is a, an area that is not incredibly lucrative, uh, but could be a fairly stable business with recurring uh, returns on investment if someone were to engage in solid, conscientious development of elect- election systems, uh, particularly that has something that's updatable, verifiable. Uh, that provides it. So there's really only about seven uh, vendors in this marketplace that serve the entire United States right now. Uh, So developing uh, secure, uh, auditable election systems uh, would be a a thing that a a business could get into or provide auxiliary support services to those companies or to states uh, that would be of immense impact and likely stabilize and, and foster stability across the entire electoral process. So that's in the poll booth. Beyond the mm-hmm. poll booth, there's a huge gap in the market for uh, protecting people's information and protecting the, the validity and, uh, uh, and fidelity of that information uh, as they move forward. Uh, and this ranges from developing platforms or uh, implementing uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning that go into platforms that verify the fidelity of information of where it came from, the origin of that information, all the way towards inspiring or and in helping individuals make choices 
that help them understand that the information they're seeing is true or false or, or not. And what we're seeing is that companies like Facebook and Twitter and uh, news sites have a very, very difficult and expensive task of verifying the uh, information and making sure that information is, is, is able to get to people in a reasonable way. And so there's a large space for coming up with creative solutions, whether it be AI and machine learning or hybrid type systems uh, that can help assess and validate information as it comes into these platforms. And at present, uh, there's a large market for this, not only in terms of the private sector, but also in terms of uh, the public sector as well. There's, there, there has been a global engagement program run by the State Department that had multi-million dollar grants on this. I know that IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, has run four programs, I believe, on this type of uh, information validity. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency as well has run multi-billion dollar programs on this. Uh, and there's a whole host of things that try and develop information validity uh, in this highly networked environment. And the space for businesses to go into that and build advanced algorithms or advanced platforms that go into other platforms is, is truly in, uh, an area for growth um, mm-hmm. and will so, likely grow for so a what long you're saying time. Is, <laughs> so what you're saying is there's a lot of money to be made in election security for companies that can actually produce technology that will do the job. Uh, yeah, I think so. And it's not just so these platforms might not necessarily be solely election security focused. But imagine you're a, you know, a company like Amazon and you want to have your customers have confidence that the product that they're receiving is truly the product that they're ordering. And I'm sure that we've all seen mm-hmm. products on Amazon or other places that we ordered thinking that it was one thing and it comes and it's actually from a third party manufacturer that wasn't the one we want. And so these types of electoral systems that ver- verify the validity of information also have spillover implications for supply chains for markets and other types of things uh, and information and, and product sourcing and other types of things that could could change a variety of different processes interesting yeah I don't I don't know what technology or what company the state of California is using for this but we have a system that uh, it was my first time using it this election cycle in 2020 but essentially I got an email when my ballot was sent out to me so I knew that it was coming in the mail to me. Then when I turned my ballot in, I voted early by Dropbox, I got an email from the state saying my vote has been collected and will be counted. And then allegedly on election day, I will also get another email notifying me when my ballot has been counted. So I can know with certainty or as near of certainty as that provides that, you know, where is my vote at any given time? Was it counted? Was it disqualified? Did I not do the signature right or whatever? Um, And that to me seems like a a pretty cool technology, whatever company did that for the state of California uh, to instill confidence in the voting process to allow that type of certainty. It's almost, you know, like, like Amazon, if I order something, I know when it's been shipped, I know even and when it's delivered to my door with a photograph that gets emailed to me saying it's there right now, uh, that seemed pretty cool. So how have you heard of this, Aaron? And is it common elsewhere? I have heard of it. And it is increasingly common, particularly in wealthier states. Uh, it is. And also, you have to realize that there's a substantial legislative barrier as well within many states to implementing these types of systems. Um, 
and this gets into non-business type things, but the this comes into how states understand or, or want to include people in the voting process. Uh, there's still a large number of states that try and undermine um, the ease of access of voting for the most part for a lot of people is the, <laughs> the, the most pleasant way to put it. Um, yeah. Uh, but have you watched the, um, have you watched that new documentary on Amazon called all in? Yeah. It's about the history of, of voting rights suppression in the United States. It's very eye opening. Yeah. The, the voting rights suppression in the United States is still a substantial challenge and one that will continue, uh, in the years to come. Um, but states like California are really implementing or utilizing techno- technological solutions to try and empower voters to understand where they're where they fit within the process. Uh, there's another series of of states, uh, 33 states actually, who are also involved in um, or 31 states, sorry, 31 states that are involved in ERIC, the Electronic Registration Information Center, uh, which is a nonprofit organization. That uh, one of the challenges that you face when you move is that oftentimes you you will show up in voter registration databases in multiple states, and so ERIC is a way that allows states to Say, hey, this person moved this year. We they should now be on our voter rolls, not on another state's voter rolls, and that prevents election fraud. It allows people to make sure that they're getting the right candidate information and so forth. And so, these types of systems uh, can really, really positively impact and empower people uh, to participate in civic processes. Oh, that's very cool. So. You have offered Aaron some uh, some options here that I hope will inspire people to get involved in providing election security technologies that can help improve the situation. I, I presume that you think that technology is pretty much, uh, you know, uh, if not the only, probably the best solution to this problem. Is that right? So I think technology is one of the best solutions. And I think that uh, I will agree with the, the, the journalist Kim Zetter in saying that um, Technology alone is not the solution, and that having auditable elections is critical. Having a printout mm-hmm. of a physical printout that gets stored uh, is is equally important uh, yeah. to having. And that, but but that, I mean, that essentially is a, just a different technology, also, right? To yeah. have yes, I mean, so I mean, it's, it's a combination hybrid model, yeah, right, right. So uh, I want to ask you. Um, even independent, Aaron, of the problems of election uh, security. Uh, many people have looked at the wars of the past and seen that, you know, these are hot wars with bombs and bullets and so on. Uh, in more recent times, you've seen cyber becoming more and more prevalent, whether it's Stuxnet in Iran or whether it's the threat of somebody trying to take out the infrastructure in the United States uh, through softer targets, uh, seeing that you know you can get away with that type of stuff much more easily than you can get away with, let's say, another 9-11, which would be very difficult to orchestrate, presumably, considering how many uh, billions and billions of dollars we've taken to harden our uh, our, our own um, security here. But what does a 9-11 in the cyber sense look like? Like, what would that type of uh, an attack look like for the United States, whether election or otherwise? Like, what's your fear that could actually occur? Yeah, so many of the fears that I have for cyber have occurred or are occurring uh, on a fairly regular basis. I mean, so we're seeing um, cities and states held hostage uh, with ransomware. both by state actors and non-state actors, uh, uh, and, you know, criminal organizations. 
So for instance, we've seen the city of Baltimore have ransomware attack most of its networks. We've seen the city of Atlanta get taken out. We even saw the Bay Area lose access to uh, the barrier transit, uh, rapid transit system due to uh, ransomware. So this type of disruption can really undermine uh, security. We've seen cyber attacks that have taken off power grids in Ukraine and in other places. We see them destroy industrial plants in, uh, in Germany. Um, we've seen them take out air traffic control radar systems in Syria. Uh, and so when you talk about engaging in cyber conflict or moving to the next stage, uh, what we're talking about is combining these discrete types of attacks into a kind of a linear or strategic pattern that increases or puts pressure on an adversary uh, to achieve a specific goal. And accomplishing that is actually really difficult. So it's accomplishing these one-off types of attacks is, 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 uh, is possible. Uh, but combining them in such a way as to achieve an impact over time uh, is very, very difficult. Uh, the one area that we have seen that was just remarkably successful uh, was the NotPetya attacks in 2017, where a Russian operation targeted the Ukrainian accounting system. And that virus essentially spread throughout the world and shut down global transit and uh, uh, and, and logistics chains for Maersk International, FedEx, and a variety of other companies caused tens of billions of dollars worth of damage. Maersk itself was only saved in their network infrastructure because of a power outage in, in one of their locations in Africa that allowed them to have a backup of all of their data systems. And so if you think about what's my cyber Pearl Harbor, it's the combination of all of these different types of things moving together in tandem that achieves uh, essentially strategic level impact uh, on a massive scale. Um, but in the meantime, we are still on a day-to-day -day basis seeing the regular impact of cybersecurity vulnerabilities. The average company that's, that's uh, penetrated of, of large scale suffers roughly 3.5 to $3.6 million worth of damage for every significant cyber attack. We are actually seeing hospital systems across the country being impacted uh, and it's uh, a study out of uh, out of Vanderbilt suggested it's actually resulting in an increased numbers of fatalities. We had the first locatable uh, uh, case of a of a true fatality related to a cyber attack when a hospital in the UK was uh, hit with a ransomware attack, causing a cardiac patient to be rerouted who died in transit. And so we're hmm. seeing these types of attacks on a regular basis, but we're not seeing them put into coordinated efforts, which essentially shut down or or substantially undermine the, the the functioning of society at present but if those were right. to accomplish uh, yeah. that would be it right we haven't had like a 9-11 yet where some cyber attack has killed thousands of people and is like you know disabled the economy shut down you know all air traffic for days on end or anything like that um, but it does seem like that actually is a, a real possibility right yes yeah yeah. Okay. Well, on that happy note, let me get to the final couple of questions <laughs> then here, Aaron. Um, so what resources are there for people who are interested in this topic and they want to make a difference? They want to help employ technology to actually do good in the world, to help humanity, to promote democracy and to secure our elections. So are there books or any other resources that you would recommend to entrepreneurs who want to make a difference while also making some money here? Yeah. So, um, Generally, there's there's a, a variety of different ways to go about this. Um, the 
one area that I would suggest is that uh, you read Ron Debert's new book that just came out on uh, it's called Reset. It looks at uh, the impact of technology on on human society. And if you're interested in uh, a fictionalized version, Cory Doctorow's new science fiction book looks at the same. And those provide the thought frameworks for a large number of of issues that that offer business opportunities, offer intellectual opportunities, and others moving forward. If you're looking to just get your feet wet into this, I'd recommend my the book with Damien von Poiveld. Uh, we go into the history and technology of cybersecurity and a lot of the, the multifaceted challenges and business opportunities for for different uh, companies and, and governments and other things. Um, for individuals, I recommend that you go and check out the cybersecurity planner, which just moved over to consumer reports from the Citizen Lab. Uh, that is a way to tailor your cybersecurity profile to your own needs uh, based on your devices and your usage of various online platforms. Um, there's a number of, of podcasts and other types of things out there. Um, code.org. If you're looking to learn how to code, that's a great way to start. Um, there's even uh, a, a variety of different online gaming platforms that'll teach you to code. And my, my kids are doing that right now uh, and, and learning how to do that. Um, there's just so many opportunities out there. Um, and then I was also just recently, I just finished up this year, I was an expert on the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, which was set, set out to design uh, define the U.S. cyberspace strategy uh, for the next decade for the U.S. And the report came out and the commissioners agreed that the, uh, the U.S. needs to build better public-private partnerships. And so finding local, uh, state, and federal partners to solve complex problems, whether it be providing access to rural areas or providing access to urban areas, to internet or coding or educational programs, and we're seeing all of these problems arising right now in the unequal distribution of access to network infrastructure and so forth in the present day. And these are just these markets are expanding. And the more you engage these markets and the more you provide opportunities to, to urban areas or rural areas that are, or have low access or low technology, the more you empower them uh, to join the, uh, the, this, these new evolving economies of scale. That's great. Very important ideas. So, Aaron, finally, speaking of good ideas, there are obviously prescriptions that you have for governments to shore up our election security. And I know you also think there's a lot of room for startups to create and profit from technology that can aid in election security. So for listeners today, what companies do you hope some of them will think about starting? That's a great question. I would really like to see a way for people to be empowered when they engage in online platforms to know the, the providence and fidelity of information to, to reality in, in a way that is, it is impactful and user-friendly. So there's been a number of plugins that have been out there for, for Chrome and other browsers that force you to use uh, SSL or secure socket layer to, to ensure that you have communications things and to make sure that your data in transit and other things. But we don't have a way to verify that the content of that data is true. And so if, if you were able to come up with a platform that is able to verify where information originated from and to help people understand how that information came to be, man, that would be impactful. That would, that would, that would change the game in terms of empowering your fellow citizens to become uh, civically aware in a, in a fact-based reality. 
Fact-based reality. Sounds like something we could all get on board with. Well, Aaron, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge in the midst of such an insane election season with us. I hope you've inspired some listeners to get in the game and advance tech that can help safeguard our elections. Please know how impressed I am by all that you've accomplished in your life and how grateful I am for all you're doing to protect both our democracy and others around the world. So, Aaron, if people want to learn more about the Tech for Humanity Lab, where can they go? techforhumanity.org. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.